Fantasy NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. We are here in week 18, and we've just watched the best all-star game ever. Anybody disagree? Best I can remember. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen it. I mean, there have been some truly competitive endings here and there, a few minutes, you know, that kind of thing. But this nothing way, like this. The the Twitter discourse was like a finals game. I mean, just like the, the casting of blame and, you know, pointing of fingers. The, 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 the People cri- cared. The, the criticism of every all-star game anywhere in any sport, it doesn't matter. It's not compelling. Nobody cares. None of that applied. We cared. It was compelling. The players played hard. It was fun to watch. Kawhi couldn't miss. In the first quarter, he got much worse, even though they still gave him the MVP. In the second half, go check those numbers. First, first quarter, amazing. Rest of the game, eh. I don't know. When you have a first quarter like that, maybe it doesn't matter. I'm just going to say, like, he should take a quarter of that trophy and maybe give the other pieces away because he wasn't the MVP for the whole game. Interesting. Uh, so it could be kind of like the the gifts to charity. Yes, you give let's a little do that. Bit of, you give let's a percentage of, of the, <laughs> the MVP pot. Each quarter, and so it, who would who'd win the other quarters? I mean, we'd have to look that up. Yeah, we'd have to go back and watch. I mean, the the that last quarter, it's clearly you know somebody from Team LeBron. Um, but I think we were reaching that ending, looking at both teams, and we we're like, well, who is going to get it? Yeah, Kawhi started great, but we haven't seen AD him lately. AD looked really good at the end. AD looked, you know, and so they're he different. He did get the game-winning free throw. There were different Put runs for suspense. different players. You know, I mean, Giannis had a run where he looked great. Trey I think, did. I think what's interesting about the the All-Star Game MVP is that it's almost always won during the portion of the game where the, the players aren't really playing defense or, like, competing <laughs> right. at a high level. <laughs> And like it's only there are a few um, examples that like differ from this, but it's usually that like a player comes out with an intention to win the MVP or they seem like they're just they're playing a little bit with a a bit more energy than everyone else. And they're getting up shots and they're making their shots. And then all of a sudden the fourth quarter comes and maybe they make one or two plays in the fourth quarter that swing the game or that, you know, push up their lead. And whoever teams wins, you know, the person with the most points or whatever, all of a sudden now that you've got MVP. Yeah. So is now, the ti- of- is now the time that we ask about whether the Elam ending should be able to be won by a free throw? Oh, jeez. Yeah, we, we, we're we yeah, do it. Should is, there, it. is there no the, – some of, some of the well, well, let's, let's, recommendations – Well, let's explain the Elam ending first. Well, so the, like, okay, one other thing first. There have been a ton of third-quarter MVPs. Just got to say that. Like, yeah. Like, and, and, and that's the usual result. It wasn't this time um, – there could be a better way to do that. But, yeah, let's get into the Elam ending, which is, I think, the thing that truly made this a compelling basketball game, right? It, w- it was this new ending. It was different than it usually is. It was um, – so they took the, sc- the the leading score at the end of the third quarter. They added 24 points. For in honor the, of Kobe. In honor of Kobe for the fourth quarter play, an approximation of how long a quarter would normally be. Not sure it applies in the All-Star game. There should have, could have been some bad math there, but it actually worked out. Usually the Elam ending would be um, uh, the general standard rule is the clock turns off with the last three minutes of the game and the team – the target score becomes plus seven, whatever the leading team score is at that point. It was 24 for a whole fourth quarter, so we saw a long run of this. 
We also saw a competitive end of the third quarter to help set up the Elam ending, which was one of the things that made it compelling. So, and now to get back to what Kyle was saying, yeah, the game was won on a missed free throw and then a made free throw, which gave them the target score. I can't remember what it is. 157? Yeah, okay. So it was 157. And yeah, should it be won that way? Twitter said no. Twitter I, said, win by two, no free throws in the fourth quarter. I mean, I can't remember. There were, there were yeah, a bunch of like funny recommendations. Ideas. Yeah. Well, it's, it's ultimately, in a sense, I mean, there's the tension for the free throw shooter that we all sort of cringe at and watch, and a, and the, a crowd goes silent or goes crazy for, depending on their perspective. But it is anticlimactic in a way that a made shot on the court isn't. Yeah, I feel like this is this usually wouldn't be my stance, but I'll I'll defend it in this sense. Uh, <laughs> Ad missed the first free throw, yeah, and like that was something. You could see the tension on his face. <laughs> you could feel the tension watching the game at home. I imagine you could certainly feel it in the arena. And like the thing is, they're playing to a target score, so it's like there's no there's oh we ran out of time or right. nothing like that. You don't have to like throw up a like terrible shot at the end of the clock. So they're just playing the game. And now the clock's off, and you've got to make a free throw, or yeah, in this case, one, one. free throw for one. AD. If he misses that, we're gonna remember that forever. It's just an exhibition game. It's just an right. All Star game, but we're gonna remember that. So <laughs> I think that is one of the benefits of the Elam ending. Like there are gonna be the, be more clutch moments, both shots and right. free throws. And yeah, we're gonna see how the players respond to it. I think that's also the likelihood that the next game ends with a free throw is is, is small. small. Yeah, I, I think it's like fifteen to twenty percent, something like that. Oh, really? That's that's an interesting. Where'd that come from? Um, I just listened to the Zach Lowe and uh, Elam Nick Elam podcast today. Nice, he mentioned nice. that that guy has a lot of stats in his head. He's been doing this for a <laughs> long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, we are uh, you know a tiny podcast. We're not gonna help him get his just due but you know credit to him this rule has been instituted in the the basketball tournament for the past two years i believe um he's been researching everybody loves it he's been researching it for i think over 10 years maybe 13 15 years something like that um the he he reported on the zach Lowe pod that the nba treated him right though he did say that the nba didn't use the elam ending name i guess in its promotion though they did use it on nba tv what they call it I think they just said, like, something target score. Uh, they're ah, going to be playing okay. to a target score. They're trying to translate for a general public. Maybe? Maybe. I don't know. So, like, I have a lot of thoughts in my head, but this kind of got me thinking about how, like, corporations, like, want to seem like the smartest, most flexible, best at everything rather than just empowering people who have spent, like, their life dedicated <laughs> to a certain thing and just right. accepting that, like, maybe they know better. Um, so that, that was a thought that I had, but yeah. It's correct. interesting because, you know, they don't have other, they don't have many other rules in the book named after the people who designed them. I mean, can you think of others? Well, I mean, there's the Mike and drill and there's, bird and I rights. think the, like the, yeah, bird rights. Um, I mean, and even the, oh. even like the widening of the lane, um, again, oh, George Mike and yeah. So, I mean, I, maybe not names, but we associate them with like the players that affected them, you know, like mm-hmm. right. the same way there's like, you know, the Doc Gooden rule and the lowering of the mound in baseball right, right. or whatever. We associate it with the player who brought it about. Who was too good and forced the change. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I it was just a thought. I just kind of felt like just use the name, you know, and and it also uh, we're it, all using the name. I actually didn't I like realize it. that they didn't. 
but it it just seems relatively in keeping with other rules in the book that you you just make a generic this is what the rule is target score yeah but it's it's also well, unless they were just going to credit Naismith basically or like their own league office or it was really no one to credit you know right. um whereas this is like they're getting something pulling something from the outside um but but it it also made me think about like uh, I'm blanking on it now, so let, let's just move on, and I'll see if I can remember it. Well, um, so just to say, like, I, I love the Elam ending. I think it is the, the 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 single factor that changed that All Star Game experience, the actual game, and so I, I I loved seeing that. There are other controversies in the All Star Game, so maybe we can talk about those well, too. Well, I mean, before we move on, I think oh, yeah. we should mention that. Um, Part of the reason the third quarter closed in such an exciting fashion was actually not because of the Elam ending, was because of the the each quarter is its own sort of mini game, and you have they were trying to win the mini game. Right. Uh, so that led to the fouling to try and tie up the score. I think Jokic was the one who hit a three. Um, but yeah, so I mean, basically the NBA instituted all these new rules that were like widely pandered. Um, and bemoaned on Twitter and by, you know, most of the NBA watching public. Right. Uh, and then they, they all pretty much worked. They worked yeah. out well. Although I yeah. will say it is a bit weird, and I said this in the beginning from our Shot Tower pod, so one of the good things about having a podcast is now that you can uh, say, go look, I had this take first. I'm not just making it up after <laughs> right. the fact. Right. But I do think it's weird that teams are, like, playing for charities and giving – like, they just give the money away. Like, I don't know. That that felt a little weird to me, and I think other people have like echoed those sentiments. But. My sen- I really just don't agree with the idea that one charity should walk away with, with what was l- a lot less money. Four hundred thousand, and the it was other four hundred one hundred. It just and seems those like kids these are charities, and yeah. I think that like the yeah. the. They those kids really look have... so sad. It was heartbreaking. The, the, I think it was the kids in the red shirts who just looked strucken, just looked like it looked bleak. Like yeah, sort of I would actually like for them to get. I would like or... for them to get the same amount of money. And the only thing that they really celebrate at the end is if the team that was you know yeah. playing for them. Yeah, maybe get some memorabilia or something extra like that. Yeah. And also, like, we're talking about a half million dollars here. Like, we couldn't come up with some more money for this. Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. They got all of this play, all of this good marketing publicity out of this aspect. We're really, we're talking about a half million dollars. Like, there's so much more money in this sport. They could give a little more away. The idea that they're playing even more like it's like playing for scarcity, for like scarce dollars out right. there and one charity is going to walk away with a quarter yeah. of what the other one did as though they were in some kind of like competition or fight when they both need the money if it's about doing something good and if it's about a greater good give them more money just like there's no reason not to let's like at least make it a million what's 500 at least make it a million yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think know. I would have just been very happy with it. The idea if they both—I mean, it's weird because if they had both gotten two hundred thousand dollars, which would have been less money than they were putting up before, I don't think I'd have this reaction. It was—it was something about the way that it—that it turned it into an unnecessary competition. Yeah, it's for, a contest for resources and like 
yeah this is charity i mean yeah i think that aspect of it was always odd to me and especially in conjunction with the kobe tribute with the 24 for the elam ending it was sort of like they were doing all these things at once and i feel like that part was rushed but like i said from the beginning also you can check the the twitter feed that the elam ending was good and would generally be good and this is the other point that i couldn't remember before is that basketball in particular in the nba is like weird uh in that like there are i think there were nba writers who didn't know what the elam ending was because it has never appeared in the nba it's never appeared in summer league it's never appeared in the g league it's only appeared um in the basketball tournament and the person who created it is sort of outside the nba ether um so there are fans who are like just tweeting people like oh this is going to be good while there are like blue checked writers who are like this is awful the nba is terrible and I feel like that's not often the case where, like, like I don't think I would go on Twitter and be like, oh, let me take the recommendations of a random person <laughs> right. about poetry, right? I'm, I'm definitely going to prefer the blue check person on, sure. on poetry. But, like, in basketball, I feel like there's a case where there's, like, whether you're studying analytics or engineering or, like, you have a professional background in sports yourself, in basketball yourself, that there's, like, all this wave of people who have great takes, you know, yeah. the person who, who did the experiment, uh, the the test on James Harden's performance after strip clubs, cities of tri- right. like that's sort of, that I feel like that doesn't happen in other arenas. And I think that's one of the good things, you know, for all of Twitter's badness, basketball right. Twitter has some good parts. An, an interesting thing there. So those sports writers hadn't read the amazing article on the Elam ending on the athletic. <laughs> which, I mean, which appeared before the game. Well, well days no, th- this was this was I think like a week before okay, or two okay. weeks before. You know, so, <laughs> maybe that's I mean, where it came some from. Some of then. these writers worked at the Athletic, so I feel like they eventually right, read right. about it. But yeah, okay. No, I mean it was just a really nice piece that explained a lot of the different variations on it. Highly recommended. I can't. Do you remember who wrote it? I can't remember. Uh, it was Seth Partnow did the interview with Nick Elam yep, and another guy who was like instrumental in creating it. And then Zach Lowe has been writing about this for like a long time. Right. Right. Um, and I, that's another thing I wanted to say. I feel like we're in this moment where the NBA is having this ratings crisis. And uh, lots of people have said this before me that part of the problem is that, like, the former players do nothing but, like, complain about the game and uh, put <laughs> yeah. the game down and say it's worse now. Uh, Zach Lowe doesn't do that. And I think Zach Lowe's a great writer, but I think one of the things that people love about him maybe that they don't even know is that he just loves the game he loves every aspect of it the courts the uniforms the shoes the designs um you know the weird elam ending in the tbt tournament that's not even in the nba yet um how he can push the game forward so i think we need more of that in our discourse and hopefully we can be the ones to provide that absolutely i mean i i I don't need uh, more discussion from the old guys who are telling me how the game used to be played or how it has to be or how like like you know the all-star game was fun as heck it was easily the most fun I've seen watching any sort of game like that and it came out of these changes yeah and I think it was unique in the sense that the usually the Elam ending doesn't start the fourth quarter it starts you know right. like a few minutes left in the quarter but in this case because the they were honoring Kobe it started the quarter so right. we got to see even longer a longer stretch of like the intensity like a lot uh, longer like that that was truly like the greatest pickup basketball game yep. in the world that was <laughs> yep. like the best players in the world playing extremely intensely for seven hard minutes with the only stoppages being like replay reviews essentially right um there was no commercials. Well, it, it, I find it hard to believe that it would have lost 
too much intensity with you know the shorter Elam ending because and this goes back to what you were saying about the third quarter. I do think that the end of the third quarter was not just about the charity and it about the winning about of that, quarters. It was about that, but it was about because the Elam you ending, get, too. It was both Yeah, things. you've got to get close enough that you're within striking distance. It was LeBron's team setting up a closer target score for them, so they had well, more no, I don't think that Well, no, I don't think that's gap. true because you wouldn't be fouling because I'm pretty sure one of the teams were fouling to get the ball back to win the quarter, so you wouldn't want to give up points if you were the losing team. I don't. I don't oh, think that. I don't think that's true. Plays? I don't. I don't remember okay. what team was doing it, but I just think that they wouldn't have been fouling to give up points okay. if it was about the Elam ending. That yeah, you're right. That could I be. Can see that could have been just about the money at yeah. that particular point. Because um, they, they yeah, there was time you. running out. They needed to get the ball back. Yeah, in order so that to win the it was quarter. that particular play. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Um, but it could also just be about the Elam ending. Like I'm, I'm not entirely ready to write it off because if you believe that. Every point that you have now is another point that the other team will have to catch up right. after the Elam ending starts. Those are actually points worth, you know, advancing the ball to the other side of the court to try to get. I think that if, I think we're we're seeing if that you have but, a, the right statistical play in doing that. And in I doing think that, and Jalen might be suggesting it wasn't. Well, I, well, the, the one that I think that you're referring to is that team Giannis advance the ball for one last shot at the end of the third quarter which would make sense like Elam you it was know, it was team it, it was that? team Giannis Trey fouled Chris Paul or someone uh they fouled twice in a row so that they could get the ball back to try and uh make the shot and I don't I think that was the quarter did the third quarter tie that I can't remember that was yeah. part of the money disparity is what would have been paid out in the third quarter with a win rolled to the fourth and the the total mo- the money for winning the total game that happened too well, so the other thing I'm curious about the charity thing is suppose that team LeBron won every quarter is there a fail safe where the charity nope. actually gets some money I, I mean they know. might have gotten 50 or something if there it was doesn't nothing. seem like it based on the current evidence right and I've been built into a contract somewhere we didn't get I'm saying see. that would I hope that they had some fail safe built in because that would be a very bad look yeah. It would be, and I think if that would have happened, I bet there would have been a player from the other team who would have been like, here, yeah. <laughs> just written a check. There should, Yeah, there should definitely be a minimum amount of money. It should be players who are doing it. It should be ownership. But if people, like, I'm yeah. expecting more goodness from the players than I am from ownership. I just am. That's true. Also I, and I always <laughs> will. That's how it works in my experience. So Yeah, yeah, that's also fair. But, I mean, I think – I'm, I I didn't want to like insinuate that like I didn't like the the fact that the Elam ending started at the start of the fourth quarter. I'm just saying that it did m- mean that like the players were playing harder for a longer period right. of time. And I think the drawbacks of that, you know, as you continue to push it out further, is that fatigue sets in Absolutely. with like no clock, and you know maybe there's fewer timeouts during that stretch, yeah. and so you won't actually get the improved play that we're all looking for. Like right. this is what this is what the league wants, right? They want NBA Finals basketball throughout all 82 games of the regular season this is the argument behind uh shortening the season so that you can improve the the play this is what the elam ending wants they want people to keep playing basketball as we know it uh with a target score in pickup basketball for example the genesis of the game we don't want to see just like constant fouling or um you know teams taking terrible shots because the clock is running out against them so yeah, I just yeah. I just wanted to note that. Yeah. So that Elam ending was a quarter 
of the f of the full game time approximately that we saw in the All-Star game. Generally, um, based on things Elam's written in various places, and some of it's picked up in that athletic article, generally the ratio, I believe, is 1 16th or 1 12th, something like that. Yeah. And so like in an NBA game, that would be three minutes or four minutes. But that's generally what he has – I don't know how he got there, but that's what he's decided is the optimal time for that sort of ending is three or four minutes. Is part of the reason why – it just occurred to me that the free throws at the end of the third quarter, if they were connected to the Elam ending, could be what everyone has said is the potential drawback of it, which is that the fouls just get pushed forward, right? You you push them forward to the point where they still matter, and right. and you try to put yourself in the best position so that when the you know when the whatever we're going to call it the is countdown a, the it is know, a the potential worry set. but Elam's tracked it apparently based on some things I've read and he what he suggests is that that does in fact happen sometimes but much less frequently than it would the way the game is played now and he said the other thing that happens is that actually more often than leading to following leading into the Elam ending it leads to just more competitive up and down play actually a faster paced game for a few minutes before you get to the ending so um that that seems to be the more common response but you are going to get both and detractors will no doubt uh raise that potential issue yeah there's there's so many points here i think this is again <laughs> from the seth part now our uh, article elam said that 80 percent of the time teams deficits oh. remains the same or uh gets it's worse, worse. And only 1% of the time, really, uh, do they lower the deficit by fouling a lot ahead of the Elam ending. Um, and also, Chris Paul, of all people, is one of the major player backers for this Elam ending, which is so interesting because he's just... Also, I think he was he one of the... He knows how to run a game. Though. He was one of the drivers <laughs> of the LeBron team winning the game. Like, he started playing... Uh, with some fire a bit yeah. earlier and like we were watching the game together and i was like wow chris paul's just gonna take set shot three perfect form three pointers the entire night he's just gonna do chris paul things and that's exactly what he did yeah. and his team won the game and i mean i think it's just really funny and interesting that he's the one that was like yes put this in right, right. <laughs> the ultimate competitor wants like the more competitive version he wants more chances to win he helped him get himself that big contract too yeah He's good for himself. Chris Paul is good for himself. He's good for the league. Yeah. He's good for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Also, as a teaser, <laughs> Kyrie Irving is the new right? vice president of the Players Association. We'll have more on that later. Yeah, we're going to have to look more deeply into that. Just happened yesterday or today. I can't even remember now, yeah. but very recently was voted in, uh, in in a recent vote. So, yeah, he'll have a significant role in that. So um, maybe people will be talking about him a little bit differently after this. Yeah. Elam's ending, Elam ending was great. The All-Star game was great. Ending on a free throw is less than optimal, but it doesn't happen that often, and it also prevents the game from turning into a true pickup game where you just you know abuse the person so they can't score, and then you just check up off <laughs> top again. Right, right. Are we going to talk at all about the lack of foul calls in the Elam ending, it's particularly no, like the last five we're minutes? we're not. <laughs> yes, we are. Go. <laughs> I mean, it was notable. They, no, they were, it was it was, a, it was a pickup was basketball nuts. game. Was, I mean, people were getting beat up, and yeah. nothing was being called. And we then would it, count and the it really fouls. felt it really felt afterward <laughs> like they were trying to make up for it. There was yeah, there, there was, was a makeup, makeup calls, deluge. 
in the final but leading up to the minutes. makeup deluge they were plays where we were calling out like oh there were five fouls on that play none of which got called yeah like Le- it was bad <laughs> Giannis was being really physical with LeBron blocked a shot uh, on the fadeaway and then LeBron returned the favor when Giannis was trying to post up um, it was interesting. I mean, and, and we were talking about this before. It felt like LeBron's team, they managed to basically wall off the paint. Uh, they didn't let Giannis get in the paint and score. Siakam couldn't move James Harden. Like, Gian- LeBron's team just had all the dudes who could play post-defense and switch perfectly. Right. Um, whereas Giannis's team had guys who were much smaller and Kemba and, and Kyle Lowry who, like, they were just stuck on LeBron. It right, seemed like right. the entire final stretch of the game, which became a problem. But yeah, it was it was amazing play. There were not a lot of fouls being called. Chris Paul <laughs> almost got a technical in classic Chris Paul fashion. They were which, screaming at the refs. And in the Elam ending, could have been you know yeah, could have on a Chris Paul changed our evaluation of the Elam ending. If it ends on a Chris Paul technical. <laughs> oh man, that would have been much worse than the than the foul free throw. A tech free throw would have been the we we wouldn't be talking like this yeah. right now. But people on Twitter would love it. They would they would love to roast Chris Paul some yeah. more. Yeah. But yeah. But I feel like this is a good time to transition to the Dave okay. Hickey essay. Um yeah. we're sort of talking about the Elam ending and how it's liberating the game in a sense. And I think right. that's at the heart of the Hickey essay. So I Very you much can lead so. us in that. Yeah, so um, this, uh, what we're about to begin talking about will be a new sort of segment here on the Shot Tower pod. We're going to be talking about basketball writing some more. We're going to talk about the aesthetics related to basketball a bit more. And some of these ideas are coming from a fairly famous, uh, if you like basketball, (laughs) essay uh, uh, from Dave Hickey, um, the title of which is The Heresy of the Zone Defense. It's only four pages long. You can find it from multiple sources illegally online. I recommend just going to dig it out however you find it. It um, was originally written in 1995, appeared in the collection Air Guitar, Essays on Art and Democracy. and is one of, for me, one of the best pieces of basketball writing out there. So I'm going to, um, what I think I'd like to do is just give you a little setup for the essay. Um, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph which, in which he describes a play that then becomes the foundation for this piece. And so it's a play a lot of people know. And I'll just read the very first paragraph of that piece. It's, it's in the third quarter, the fifth game of the 1980 NBA Finals, which I, I'm stopping after two sentences already, but uh, 1980 NBA Finals. This is on tape delay. I was a kid sitting in a living room in Michigan watching this at, 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 tw- at midnight um, on my own. Everybody else in the house has gone to bed. I'm the only person watching this on tape delay, but it was the, tape delay, but it was the only way you could watch games then. So I remember this. I remember seeing this play. We and, and I remember having a recording of this that I watched over and over too. So it has some personal res- resonance for me because of that. Um, but here we are, fifth game of the 1980 NBA Finals. Lakers versus 76ers. Maurice Cheeks is bringing the ball up the court for the Sixers. He snaps the rock off to Julius Irving, and Julius is driving to the basket from the right side of the lane against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Julius takes the ball in one hand and elevates, leaves the floor. Kareem's goes up to block his path, arms above his head. Julius ducks, passes under Kareem's outside arm and then under the backboard. He looks 
like he's flying out of bounds, and he did. He looked like he was flying out of bounds. When we first see the play, you can't understand where Julius Irving is going at that point in time in 1980. Now we could. It would be different. But it looks like he's flying out of bounds. But no, somehow Irving turns his body in the air, reaches back under the backboard from behind, and lays the ball up into the basket on the left side. Yeah. So so while you catch your breath, um, uh, I'll, I'll just, I, I don't want to read the entire essay, obviously. Um, but I that just, was all I wanted to read. Just yeah, that yeah. one thing. Well, the problem is I also have things that I marked down <laughs> to read. So yeah, if we're not careful, we're going to read the entire essay, but while you catch your breath, I just wanted to like point out this, this part. Um, I think at, at the heart of the, the essay, as we said before, is like the idea of liberation of like fair, uh, like equitable competition right um and in that play um hickey writes um kareem's remark clouds the issue however because the play was as much his as it was irving's since it was kareem's perfect defense that made irving's instantaneous pluperfect response to it both necessary and possible so in talking about how he's talking about how kareem said he would pay to see that play made against someone else right uh, but but the what was so great about the play was that the move was necessary. He wasn't yeah. Dr. J wasn't going to be able to score without making that move. And I think right. that's basketball. Like that play is an encapsulation right. of basketball. I know I'm from Miami. I'm a big Dwayne Wade fan. He talks about um, the like the cross back. Essentially, you're driving right, say, and you stop on a dime and put the leg reverse between your legs instead of the the typical way. And he's right. like, I did that out of necessity. Like a, a player was about to steal the ball, I stopped and I did this. He's made people fall like numerous times in the NBA, but it came out of necessity, you right. know. And I and I feel like that's sort of that's what sports is about. That's what yeah. competition is about. And that's part of what this essay is getting at. And it's a phrase we'll come back. Another phrase we'll come back to. Besides, um, the, the 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 driving idea here is uh, in the essay is rules that liberate versus rules that govern. And sometimes the rules that liberate become the rules that govern. And there needs to be a new response to recreate the liberation or regain the liberation. And so this is fluid to some extent. But I, I love that you picked that out, Jalen, because what we have there is somebody play, playing you know, great offense, starting with Julius Irving initiating the play on the wing or on the, on the baseline there. Then we have amazing defense, you know, perfect defense from Kareem. So there's Julius Irving cannot make the shot or play he intended to to begin with. Mm-hmm. Make some change because he has to do something. And then finishes the play in a way we've never seen before. And here are two amazing athletes at the peak of what they can do. And the peak of what they each did offensively and defensively, mm-hmm. too. This It's this enormous point in the history of basketball where the best and the best, I mean, it's the championship. It's mm-hmm. the finals. Everything met at that critical extreme point to create this thing we had never seen before. And I think that's something we get from basketball over and over and over again. We can get it on a regular season game night. Yeah, and and I feel like this is something obviously someone could do a lot more research on, but it, it feels like that sort of governing versus liberating is like inherent to the game of basketball. Uh, maybe in part um, that's the case because it was created, you know, it was just invented as almost a response to baseball and football, and they're sort of you know football's violence and baseball's sort of like traditional stolidness or right. whatever. Um, and so 
that just seems like it's inherent to the game and it feels like it's inherent to a game like soccer and people yeah. often equate soccer and basketball together people often equate these people and often the say these games are very beautiful yep. in similar ways <laughs> that they're very equitable they're very team oriented right. um so th- there seems to be something there um the, and the, i, I want to pass this to kyle because um <laughs> yeah. the idea of like governing is actually touched upon here in hickey's essay uh And he talks about the NCAA, essentially. And he says, opposing this coalition of ebullient fops is the patriarchal cult of college basketball coaches and their university employers who have always wanted to show the to slow the game down, to govern, to achieve continuity, to ensure security and maintain stability. Go off, King. To make players part of a system, to make them interchangeable, to turn them into factory cogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. My issue with the college game has centered on what I consider to be deeply seated um, sort of racial biases and mm-hmm. uh, that um, I believe in particular um, people in places like where I grew up in the middle of Michigan, um, uh, the things that they were not saying or that they were expressing despite themselves when they were saying, oh, I don't watch the NBA. I don't. Yep. Um, they don't play hard was always mm-hmm. the example. It was just, they don't which pass, is, which is, the they don't thing. pass. It's, it's, just it like, was really crazy, <laughs> nonsensical. Um, you know, they clearly didn't watch it was yeah. really what it was yeah. about. And they didn't watch it in part, I think because of this era around 1980, the tape delay game, this, this sort of the specter of violence that was, you know, surrounded the mm-hmm. NBA, this, it really being a black league mm-hmm. and, and a, a league you know, at a time that is also connected with black power. And, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a liberation. There is an empowerment in the NBA that you don't get in college basketball. The ruler in college basketball is the coach. Um, they stamp out every scandal. They push down any bad doings of their players for their own benefit. They have contracts that pay them millions of dollars and their players make no money. That's not the case in the pros. <laughs> you know, John Beeline is struggling right now uh, for much the same reason. He's coming from the college ranks and now uh, he's in the pro game. His players are much more empowered. He has to cater to them in ways that he's never had to before. And I don't know all the details of that and maybe it's unfair to mention him, but that's just like the archetype, the blueprint for what college coaches have to deal with when they transition to the NBA. And that's what fans have to deal with when they watch the NBA. There's no, um, you know, if a player wants to wear a Supreme uh, armband, they can, you know, the coach isn't going to prevent them from doing that. They're, they're going to express themselves in ways that they are unable to, to do in the college game. So it's interesting. I I just want to say one thing here because the, the, the titular heresy of, of the, of the zone is it's interesting, right? Because NBA players today play zone defenses, mm-hmm. and there's a beauty to it. There, mm-hmm, there's right. a type of there's a knowledge of the 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 you know the scheme that they're playing, yep. and this this sort of organic coordination between the players that is is in a lot of ways um, you know not replicated in college. If mm-hmm. if well, there if there are times when it comes close, I mean there they, there are good agree. defensive schemes. The NBA zone defense, you can't generally give the same easy names that you can give the college zone defense we're not saying the two three sure. we're not saying the one two two we're not saying like the boxing one that warriors game yeah sure came up it worked that one time but that's not how zone defense works in the nba it's matchup it's much more fluid it's the guys on the string like 
it's that that's happening when we have that in the NBA versus college, which is a pretty standard structure. Yeah, and I think you know the reason why I was bringing that up is because I think in certain ways um, the unbelievable skill of the players and the fact that it isn't dictated by a coach per se but is allowed to organically form is still scary to people who would like to top-down control the sure. actions of whatever process are taking place. And I think when people say that – NBA players don't pass or they they or or a lot of times they'll actually say things like they don't play a scheme, you know, in in different words. But it's mm -hmm. it's it's effectively yeah. saying that they, they, they actually I know what it is. They say they don't play as a team. They, <laughs> right. it, you know, there's this idea that they are individual standout talents and that's all the NBA really is. They really want to say that the NBA is the place where individualism is the problem as opposed to the college game where the individualism of the coach hidden on the sideline to people but also felt in all the movements on the court right. gets to be disavowed in a certain way while still felt as pleasure. But right? They get to we... feel the pleasure of control yeah. while disavowing. Right. Yeah, the, there, there's the, a there's a need for control. Like every time you watch a Jim Beheim team, you know what you're getting. You're getting a, a long arm zone defense. Like they're all gonna play the same way, which is not to take anything away from him, but like exactly as you said, it's like as is mentioned in the the Hickey essay, it's the coach as auteur. Like it's it's all about the coach. It's all about the coach. And this idea that you can't play team basketball and also uh, you know, uplift the individual excellence of the players on the team is just like completely it's heresy. It, you know, it doesn't <laughs> right. it doesn't make sense. It's it's not true. Like doing that is actually what is making the game so much more exciting today. Like um, it, I think this essay connects in, in a lot of ways to the sprawl ball essay, which has uh, mentioned that like all the rules changes the league, ha the league has yeah. undergone is to make the game more aesthetically pleasing, um, to make it uh, more equal so that if you, you didn't just have to employ a team full of seven footers now, you know, shorter guys are capable of making an impact because they can shoot long threes because they're allowed to do that. Um, and so I just feel like, yeah, it just doesn't make sense that you have to like tamp down everyone's own individual brilliance to put together right. a team. Like there is some sense of sacrifice, but like, the Warriors came about by embracing everyone's individual brilliance. There are I've As watched a team so concept. I've watched so many <laughs> Warriors games where Draymond is just fuming because Clay Thompson just took a two second, like two seconds at the shot clock. He just took a deep three for no reason. Right. But like, I bet they don't say anything to him most of the time because you know what? He's gonna make it like forty percent of the time, and he's just gonna he's gonna figure it out. You know, like they just work together. Like they didn't stop Steph Curry from shooting deep threes. They're like, okay, this he's undersized. We got to get a taller person, a better defender next to him. They didn't stop Draymond from doing his bit, being the villain, being a great defender. I mean, it may have cost them a championship, but it also probably got them a couple other ones. So. Right that just that's just not in keeping with reality the, the idea uh, that college basketball puts out in the world yeah yeah so we have hickey writing this essay in the mid 90s which is kind of funny when you think about the rules that liberate and the rules that govern because at the time was probably one of the more brutal versions of basketball that we saw in the history of basketball um, you know, this was a, a Alonzo Mourning and Patrick Ewing beating the crap out of each other. It was just like a lot of big guys and hard fouls. And that was a kind of hallmark of the game at the time. 
but then, as you mentioned, Jalen, there are so many rules that come after, um, and some were already in play, but any number of rules sort of fit into the Hickey essay in the sense that the 10-second the rule, the shot clock, the yeah. illegal defense rule, yeah. you know, all of these things changing, hand-checking, all yeah. of that stuff is the trajectory that Hickey's talking about from the very beginning of basketball when Naismith formed those rules to now. And maybe the Elam ending is one of the next steps in that. Or maybe, and this is for Kyle again, maybe they figure out a way to referee post-play for big men that opens up that aspect of the game. And so now the post-play is open, the three-pointer is still going to be open, maybe even in a new way because of it. Like, could that make the game? Could that liberate the game? It'll liberate a type of play. Does it liberate the game? Yeah, you know, it's really it's it's important to point out that every rule change has trade-offs. And Absolutely. we've talked before about how the shift to, you know, the beautiful game of the, you know, those 2013-2014 um, Spurs teams and then the, the Warriors um, after that um, were – one in response to the style of play that um, the teams were in response to the style of play of LeBron, and the rules um, were shifting too because um, you know the, the the team owners got together and um, and they they said in a, in effect that um, LeBron as we as people say and I hate this phrase I actually don't think it's true but his bullying his way to the basket. Um, was creating an unfair advantage for everybody else. And I've always thought that he was um, he was halted a bit in his prime by these rule changes that have had one really obviously beautiful effect in those Spurs and Warriors teams and in the, the style of play that we have now. I don't think, though, that calling the game so differently on the perimeter from the way that they do inside is doing anyone any favors. Right. You mean the rule change of like removing hand checking? Yeah, and, down and, low, and and still and still allowing for a whole lot of contact down low, so that basically, you know, when LeBron drives, he can get bullied. Mm. You know, it, to use the you know the term in a reverse on people. Um, you know, he he can get pushed around quite a bit, um, and. You have very little contact that is permissible on the perimeter, and I do think it's skewed a bit too far in the other direction. And mm -hmm. you know, th when I when I say that, I would like to have some rule changes that enable um, a robust post game. It's really because I think that the more weapons that teams have on offense, the more beautiful the game will be. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think I think the goal is to have everyone be liberated, and yeah. I don't. I don't think this is completely true. In, well, it's to be to be balanced because the thing is, you can't you can't, you can't give too much. Um, but that is everybody being liberated. Yeah, in, what, in a what, way, what, but the what, defense too, because you sure because you you need. I to, think it's over for defense. There's no more <laughs> defense. Will never be liberated again. I mean, if we're using the All Star Game as a model, defense will never be liberated again. Yeah, I mean, I think I think <laughs> I think defense is a separate question, but I mean, I agree. So, I mean, I will say is LeBron is defense? LeBron is part uh is 
a perimeter player himself, so he benefits from the no hand checking rule. Also, like if you can't right. hand check LeBron, he's gonna get to the That's basket. That's true. And, and everyone, most players have have a driving game too. Yeah, he's gonna get to the basket at will. But I I I, I agree with your point that like Shaq, LeBron. Uh, would incur more contact than the average player and not get a foul call simply because he's so strong. And so you're not going to see him move drastically or flare or anything like that just because it's not affecting him as much, but it is still a foul under the rules of the game. So I completely agree with that. And I think, and I think, yeah, I think whether it's, you know, narrowing the lane, whether it's widening um, the corners so that the the three-point line is further out in the corners and that makes that shot less powerful and maybe brings down the overall three-point per, three percentage, which means, hey, listen, stop shooting threes, pass the ball to Carl Anthony Towns in the post now because your, <laughs> right. your corner three isn't going in as much. You know, whatever it is, I think liberating all aspects of the game will make it more interesting. Like, I don't think people are actually – I don't think it's right to say that the game is – uniform in any way but I do think that we're maybe not seeing you know the best of a player like Carl Anthony Towns or or Joel Embiid and maybe it's even less about the rules and more about the way the rules are enforced as you're saying because there's just so much contact that's allowed in the post that isn't allowed on the perimeter that it makes it impossible even for someone as big and strong as Joel Embiid uh, to really impose his will on the game on a nightly basis. I've always thought it was a, it would be a very elegant solution just to get rid of the break on the three-point line. You just mm. continue the arc, you know, yeah. on Isn't the Isn't it in sprawl arc. ball? Yeah, yeah, it's it's in it's in sprawl brawl. Yeah. I mean, he has some wackier solutions like allowing goaltending on three-pointers, which I don't necessarily (laughs) want. But I think the easiest one is to get rid of the break on the three-point line. Because I think, as I said, I think it'll lower three-point percentage because teams put their, oftentimes, their worst three-point shooters in the corner. Because, like, the best three-point shooters, like Damian Lillard's on the ball. He can't hang out in the corner. Um, You know, if Kyle Korver is in the corner, you're just never leaving the corner. So, like... Uh, but if another worst three-point shooter is in the corner, maybe you leave, and you're still going to pay the price because it's going to go in enough. You know, talking about trade-offs, though, the spacing in the game, that would all of a sudden make the corners the most inefficient shots in basketball. And you basically would not see players there if, at if, all. If you go look at the Sprawble, I want to say he suggests some math and percentages. of a, There's a, a certain distance that could be uniform and lengthened for the corners it's a little different on the wings and top. I can't remember what it is exactly, but there is an optimal point that could balance it if his math is correct. Not widening the court? You might have to widen. I you, think you do have you to widen, widen the court to do slightly. that, which he has also pointed out probably won't happen because that's where the expensive seats are. Everything would have to move back, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Those yeah. courts come and go. I think they could figure that out. I don't think that would be the hindrance that people think. But um, there is a distance that seems optimal to creating some balance between twos and threes and types of threes. Yeah, and I think what I'm trying to say and what Hickey says very well in the essay is this. Still, in the complexity of the game, there is the promise of solutions as daring as Dr. J's, and they are personal solutions because my basketball is not your basketball and you are not me. So, like, in the past, there you couldn't be a 5'9 point guard and – be as successful as someone like Steph Curry in the NBA, whether it's because of stigma and lack of opportunity or simply because your coach wasn't going to let you take 35-foot three-pointers, which would decimate the defense and force all of the 6'9 people that are on the floor who don't have the 
foot speed that you do to play in your arena on the floor, right? So we, we've now uh, liberated the smaller guy, the more skilled player, and I think what we're looking for is a way to also liberate the bigger player. The bigger player is also now more skilled, whether it's Chris Stapps, Porzingis, Joel right. Embiid, Has Carl Anthony be. Towns. They can shoot threes. Like, yeah, that that's. I don't think that's going to go away. Like, skill is is so necessary in today's game because of the spacing, because of yeah. the three point line. That, and I think it's a benefit. Like, I was I tweeted this out. I was watching a Mavs game. And um, Tim Hardaway Jr. threw a lefty cross-court pass out of the pick-and-roll. And And I'm like, what just happened? (laughs) Like, A, I didn't know he was capable of doing that, but he did it so casually. And it's just like, I'm not to say he could do it every time down the floor, but it's like there's no way the third or fourth best player on a team was capable of doing that 10 years ago. Absolutely true. There were much more isolated skills with teams in the past, and you cannot get away with that now. Even sometimes having the the three point specialist isn't yeah. viable now. And like, which yeah, is, which is, is something that's considered... bemoaned in sprawl ball, but yeah. I don't think it really exists because those guys are getting played off the floor yeah. in the finals. Like, right? Uh, what's his name? Uh, Anderson for the for the, oh, the Ryan Raptors. Anderson. Ryan Anderson. He's been waived. Oh. He's just constantly getting waived because he can't stay on the floor on defense. And he got this huge contract based on his three-point shooting. Yeah. And he's the highlight of that in sprawl ball. Yeah. But yeah, it's like there's no more Jason Caponos or anything nope. in the NBA anymore. <laughs> One other thought I had. It's interesting to me that Steph Curry went to Davidson and not to Duke. And you wonder if he would have developed into the same player that he Probably is. not. I don't think so. I mean, I think <laughs> nope. for the for the same, you know, the there's just such a stronger, you know, he would have Redick system presence. So he yeah. becomes Redick instead of Steph Curry, yeah. which wouldn't be bad. No, but bad, it wouldn't. But, but it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't have changed the game. It yeah. wouldn't change the game by launching from the logo. Yeah. yeah. Would Lillard still have done it if? Well, Curry I mean, had. Lillard is the same. Yeah, I mean, I, he's also from Weber State. You know, both of them went to smaller schools. So, like, what happens if they go to bigger schools? But they, but it's like a thing, like, I don't know. I really don't understand why it took the league, the NBA, basketball in general so long to, it was to like, the adopt from the, the long three-point shot. Like, if you, I've played with people who played, like, D3 basketball in college. They're really good at shooting. And when you're 28 feet, no one's guarding you because nope. it's not in their brain to guard you from that far out. So they just shoot because they're not guarded and it goes in a lot. It's like this has been instrumental in the game for a long time. If you were a good shooter, you've taken those shots in practice yep. or playing around in a game. And no one's going to guard you for like the first five years that you do this because they've been taught run back yeah. to the paint and protect the paint. And it's still exploitable. We still see it happen in games at important points. So, you know, it's still happening in that way. Um, So we've talked a lot about this. I have one question that you don't need to answer uh, coming out of the Hickey essay. What if Dr. J had missed the shot? There would have been another shot. It would have been another shot that Hickey would have pulled out and talked about. Which I mean, couldn't you just say, like, Kareem's skyhook is another great example of this? It was like— You would need to pick a particular instance, but yeah— yeah, I mean, you would, you know, to open an essay, yeah. you'd need a particular instance. But that one's a great, in a way, an even well, better example because it turned into a repeatable shot true. that 
that True. was beautiful. Sure. And I, it gets at another piece we'll bring in. I can't remember the title of the essay, but it's Hanif Adurakib. He picks out the, the, the play in which Allen Iverson breaks down Michael Jordan with a crossover. And then he spins that out into its own argument, um, which is fascinating. And I think we can uh, – we'll, so in another pod, we'll talk about that and bring some of this hicking – hickey thinking to it as well as the Naismith stuff and the early rules as well as sprawl ball when we get to that I think there's a ton here to talk about about aesthetics and the way the game can move uh, and I'm going to end us with another quote from an article uh, in Esquire about Kobe but they were quoting uh, Jim Carroll who often gets credited as being a great basketball writer it's possible time has passed his great book basketball diaries and it doesn't quite hold up but in talking about basketball Jim Carroll once said in basketball you can correct your mistakes immediately and beautifully in midair which is exactly what Dr. J did in that play and is exactly the kind of thing that makes it thrilling over and over again whether it was the all-star game we just saw or a regular season game which will restart on Thursday so I love this stuff. I love the beauty of basketball. We're going to be talking more about it. Any last thoughts, guys? Well, your last changing your you know changing your mind, correcting in split seconds. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of Dwayne Wade changing his mind slash changing the score when the other judges thought that they were going <laughs> to like be having a tie. And then the looks that he the got. The dunk contest is what we're talking the about. The dunk contest, yeah. He clearly manipulated that on his own. <laughs> uh, I think not not entirely clear. Probably, almost certainly, he might smirk if you asked him. He might not tell you he did it, but you'd know he did it when he made the smirk. Yeah, it looked, it looked like there was something there. And obviously, we should point out, for those of you who made the, the wrong decision not to watch the the dunk contest or at least watch the highlights uh Derek Jones Jr a current member of the Miami Heat and former teammate of of Dwayne Wade was in the all-star game and was in the finals against Aaron Gordon um and Dwayne Wade gave Aaron Gordon I think a nine and I think the basically one more person needed to give him a 10 to uh, for them to tie (laughs) in order to go to like a judge's decision essentially on who had the best dunk which also would have been weird and not not the point of the contest but Right. It yeah. would have been fixed in a different yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But I think we can also apply Hickey to the dunk contest because in my mind, and I know I might have some disagreement here, uh, in my mind, Derek Jones Jr. was the more liberated, more beautiful, more compelling, more thrilling dunker out of all of that. And I absolutely believe he won it straight up. I think Aaron Gordon was, to use the hickey language, governed by past judging of dunk contests and his own conception of what a great dunk is. I think Derek Jones Jr. took it to a new place and should have won regardless. I think Kyle and I disagree with you. I, know, I didn't. I didn't have. And that I don't care. Reaction. I don't care. So Go like, ahead. I mean, I think. <laughs> I think you have a beautiful still, reading here. I'm still I think right. That you're, regardless of whether you disagree, I with think me. you're overlaying a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Onto the there's dunk a lot to unpack here. What else do you there? want me to do? As as we would say in the workshop, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. Um, there's no, a lot. To I mean, I think Derek Jones. I, I will say this: Derek Jones Jr. is skinny. 
and he yep. jumps really, really, really high. It's amazing. Um, and I think there is a certain aesthetic quality to that. Like I think it's like when Spud Webb won. Yeah, you but know, but I mean nothing that he did was particularly striking except for he's just small, so it made everything look really. But grand but Derek Jones Jr. is like six seven, so I yeah. mean it's I know, not the I'm, same thing. I know it's a different kind, but what I'm saying is there's 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 something about the movement of the body and the body's relationship to the you know the the court in the, yeah. the basket yeah, that yeah. Like changes Setting your perception. The height, the, all of it. Yeah, yeah, I think his height, his slim build, um, the the dunks he was doing specifically he's got these long arms he kept doing between the legs dunks so i think there is an aesthetic quality that made watching him a more enjoyable experience right. and he also like he didn't clip anyone he did push bam on his dunk but like i think aaron gordon's like mistake or whatever was like easier to see but he was also doing the harder dunk and i think generally was doing harder dunks in in the the dunk over taco fall and then the 360 off the side of the backboard, which right. I think was I'll the best dunk. I'll give you that one. I'll give was, you the second one. I there. think that was the best dunk of the night. Um, so I don't know if I totally buy into the whole liberated thing, but I do think aesthetics have a impact, and I think that probably to some extent swayed the judges. And just to be clear, I knew you guys would disagree with me. We've talked about this probably. This is probably our third time talking about this. So I knew that was coming. I wanted to hear it. You're still wrong. I'm still right. Derek well, Jones Jr. was easily should have won, and Dwayne Wade was right to cheat. I've said this again. <laughs> I said this before on the pod, and I will say it again now. I think that in a lot of ways, the NBA will benefit from being able to um, showcase beauty, as yes. we're talking about today, that's not solely connected with winning. And yeah. To the extent that nice we th- that we could have um, done that um, there, I think it would have been great. But they didn't. They had a chance to have a tie. To, to, they they actually, I think that they earned yeah. a tie. Yeah. And okay. I don't think that they needed to have someone walk away. When it would have been, I'm sure Aaron Gordon doesn't feel that way. I mean, I think he thinks he's won two dunk contests. He now, does. And like tying to him just wouldn't have felt good either. Right. But I'd love to have a culture where you know we need a champion. For it the was finals. All amazing. I don't know that we need in every dunk contest for someone to be declared the winner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good point. I feel how like there's they, been a how lot of. How do they ever get away from that, though? How? I think. I don't know if there needs to be a winner in every contest, but I do think part of the. Part of what makes competition so intense and so great is that there is a reward uh, to winning at the end of it. Um, but as far as judging goes, I think that's a different case. But I just also want to say before we before you say something very intelligent, let me get this hot take <laughs> off. Um, free throw line dunks are vastly overrated, and the dunk contest is skewed toward free throw line dunks, and it's driving me crazy. Derek Jones Jr. jumped from inside the free throw line. He didn't even I mean, do a full free throw line like jump. He was like the dotted line. And and Come he on, won man, the contest. It was Thirteen and, feet. And then la- and then the last major dunk contest that we saw between Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine. Zach Levine kept jumping from the free throw line. Once you do it once, we know you can do it. He had like <laughs> 10 feet to clear. It's like, oh, okay, you did a normal free throw, free throw line dunk. Then we do a windmill from the free throw line. Then we do something else. from. It's like, yeah. we get it. You can do this already. Do something else. It used to matter. It used to be amazing. The first time Dr. J did it, mind's blown. So 
I think there's a reason for it, but yeah, completely agree. It's over. I have Kyle pointing at me, and he's pointing at his watch, which also means I get to say my one last thing here before I say my other last thing. My other, the other winner, which I also think is beautiful, out of the dunk contest is once again Derek Jones Jr. because Puma gave him a shoe deal after this. So congratulations, Derek Jones Jr. on your shoe deal. And the other part will just leave up to controversy. <laughs> I think that's it. You don't hand out ties lightly, but you can hand out ties. I think when the situation warrants it. It could have warranted and it could have been a great moment. If it you was missed. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review Shot Tower Podcasts on all of your favorite podcast platforms or buy us Pumas. Uh, I'm a size 11. I don't know what these two are. I'm also but- a size 11. I don't need Pumas. Right. He needs Pumas. He just doesn't know it poor yet. Poor decision. I, I like my A6. <laughs> I'm sticking with my A6, my Tigers. Oh, man. Pumas. All right. They're that's amazing. a wrap, guys. Talking about beauty. Pumas. All right. We're wrapping. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. <laughs>